0: You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our reading this morning is taken from Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22, and then First Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. Galatians 5.22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against such things there is no law. Our second reading is coming from 1 Peter, chapter three, beginning in verse eight. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is the word of the Lord. All right, let me begin with this. Um, Through the challenges that we as a community have been walking through together, ranging from global pandemic to the fight against racial injustice to experiencing all the division of another, yet, an, yet another political year like 2020. It's been an opportunity really for me to solidify my philosophy of ministry. And it, it's, it's come really through a season where there's been, at least for me, an experience of a lot of tugging whether it is you know the tug to be present or to be absent to be gathering or to be scattering or to be vocal or active or post something and you should say something and you should do something and why were you not at this event and why were you at this event and what's your statement on this and what's your stance on this and i found myself particularly me like slipping away from being vision driven to being response driven just being really reactionary, like feeling like the, the tyranny of the urgent, like I gotta respond to this, and I gotta respond to this, and respond to this, and forgetting what God has called me, and called us to be. And so what this season has really forced me to do is realize and reassess my approach to community and, and public engagement, and really determine how we as a church are to remain faithful and a faithful presence and witness in such a historic moment like 2020 while at the same time continuing to press forward in the mission that god has given us as a church we exist to glorify god and to make disciples of all people that's why we're here and we can never lose track of that to be a part of that this church means to be a part of that mission So, how do we be present right now and yet moving forward in, in what god has called us to be and so I wanna begin by explaining my philosophy of ministry and really what we are seeking to achieve here as a church. And I preface this with this. I believe that this is something that is evident throughout the New Testament teachings. This isn't my hobby horse, I'm trying to like push on you guys, but I believe that this is really the call to all men and women throughout all generations. And it's this, it's in a nutshell, and then I'll flesh it out, and then we'll get into our teaching this morning. in a nutshell, it's this, that the church is to exist as an alternate society within the greater society. And this is done not by being absorbed into the culture. So the church is never to resemble the culture. The church is to never be so close that we actually just disappear into what's going on. And yet at the same time, the church is also called not to avoid culture well that's a social issue and we're, we're, we're the church and those are separate so we avoid those issues we're not absorbed and yet we don't avoid and so what do we do well we're to be a community that cultivates something new and better in the midst of it and what's important for us to remember especially right now is that you don't change culture or society by trying to change culture or society you don't change something by trying to change something counterintuitive. But you change culture by creating a new and more beautiful one that makes the old one obsolete. You present something new. And this is how the Christian church has been so influential and transformative at different points throughout history. And that's why I would argue that we lack influence in this season. Why? Because we've lost track of who God has called us To be and how we're to function in our current moment we're an alternate society within a society and this is an approach that we trace all the way back to the origins of the church all the way back to the life and ministry of Jesus Christ think about it on the night before the crucifixion as You know, Judas is scheming and he's betraying. The religious leaders are mounting their attack. The army is getting information, and Jesus knows it. Jesus is not blind to what's going on. In fact, he tells Judas, he says, listen man, go do what you gotta do. I know what you're up to, go do it. Jesus knows what's going on. Jesus knows what's coming his way, that the enemy is forming. And if there's ever been a night for Jesus to react and to fight fire with fire and to form his counterattack, it would be this Thursday night. And yet, what does he do as the nation is raging? Well, when the expectation would be for him to go do something extraordinary and go do something extreme, instead, Jesus does this wild thing. He, he shares an unhurried meal with his disciples and then one by one, he washes their feet. Think about that contrast. The armies are forming, mounting their attack against Jesus, and what is Jesus' response? He shares a meal with his disciples, and he washes their feet. What's he doing? He's in the process of changing the world, man, and he's doing it by displaying a new and more beautiful way that is ultimately marked by love and service and sacrifice. And so what is reality about? We're about displaying a new and better way of life that has been opened up to us and for us through the resurrection of Jesus and the presence of His Holy Spirit. This is really what we are seeing here in, in the fruit of the spirit that we have been welcomed into a new way of life. And now we are calling men and women to come and to, be, to get in on it too, for their lives to be transformed through trusting in Christ and practicing the way of the kingdom. And what we see here in Galatians 5 is that as we live in a world that is divided, as we live in a world that is completely disordered, we are those who by God's transforming grace now have the power to display a way of life that's different, that's marked by love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control? What if those things, those very things, permeated our world? How different our world would look. We're those who display ultimately what the healing reign of Jesus Christ is all about. And so today at a very, I believe, a very timely moment, we're looking at the third fruit mentioned in Galatians 5. We're looking at peace. Peace. We look around in the world and we see what Paul describes as the works of the flesh. Enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, suspicions. Am I interpreting culture correctly right now? It's what we see. And so never has it been more important for us, the church, to take a counter-posture. One that's marked by peace. And the reason I say that this is what the church ought to do is because according to the apostle Peter, as he reminds us in verse 9, to this you were called. (sighs) there's a lot of times where we're like, man, what am I called to? What am I supposed to do? What, what am I even here for? I can't answer that for you. But what I can tell you is this. You've been called to be an agent of agent of peace in a crazy, disordered world. So if you're taking notes today, what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at three things from this passage. I'm gonna spend the majority of the time uh, on the first note. We're gonna look at attitudes that promote peace, actions that pursue peace, and then ultimately abiding that produces peace. So if you're taking notes this morning, the first point is this, attitudes that promote peace. Let's look uh, again at 1 Peter verse uh, chapter three, verse eight. Finally, all of you. Okay, so who is Peter talking to? All of you, us. Okay, no one is exempt. If you're a child of God, this is to you. Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love a tender heart and a humble mind so let's do this let's just look at those uh, particular attitudes that promote peace one by one looking first subpoint, at like-mindedness like-mindedness we will forever struggle to find peace within the christian community if we lose focus on what we do agree upon There's a lot of disagreement in the world, there's a lot of disagreement in politics, and sadly, there's still even a lot of disagreement in the church. I think that is always going to be until Christ returns. But what we can do to change the tide is to focus on what we do agree upon, which, believe it or not, is a very long, important, robust list of things that we do agree upon. Who God is, what Christ has done for us, the necessity for forgiveness, the reality of heaven now it may sound like a really odd time for us to be talking about doctrinal clarity and theological unity and these sort of things while while the world seems to be falling apart but we can't forget that our unity is not based on our shared interests our unity is not based on our shared political views our unity is not based on our shared concerns for social reform Our unity is not based on a shared ethnicity. Our unity is is based on our shared faith and our shared commitment to God's word. That's what makes for unity. That's what makes us one. And so when the scriptures call us to be eager to maintain the unity, the bond of peace through the Holy Spirit, in Ephesians 4, it then goes on to say why we should care about this. Ephesians 4 starting verse three. There is, what? One body, all right, I'm gonna need you, and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So is Paul trying to make a point here? I think so. There's many and many differences, Many backgrounds, but let's remember one God, one Father, one Christ, one Spirit, one faith, one baptism. And we will promote peace so long as we focus our minds and our hearts and our lives on what we do agree upon. As we seek to obey and conform our lives to the Scriptures, which is the steady source of truth. From which we then can draw really important conclusions about how to apply those things, you know, to social issues and that sort of thing. But we have to settle this first. We have to settle that the waters of baptism that unite us will always be more powerful than the differences that we have that are always trying to divide us. There are forces right now that are trying to separate us. Do you know that? Satan would not want nothing more than to tear this church apart. But Jesus says the waters that you were baptized in are stronger than these forces of division. You have been made one. Now, be eager to maintain that oneness. Can I get an amen? amen. All right. Secondly, Sympathy. Sympathy. If like-mindedness is a sharing of a common truth, then sympathy is a sharing of common feelings. What it means is being willing to experience emotional highs and lows together. Now, I remember a few years ago listening to a podcast that was describing this this topic, uh, what they called entanglement. And they were interviewing a woman named Amanda, And what Amanda claimed to experience was such a deep uh, empathy and sympathy for other people that she had to completely alter her way of life because she felt what other people were feeling, quite literally feeling in her body. So she'd be at the park and she'd see a young boy fall and scrape his arm. She would feel the pain in her arm. She had to eat alone because anytime she watched someone else putting food in their mouth, she would choke on their food. Once she, she, she fell, uh, saw a boy like fall off her bike and was severely injured and she had to herself crawl to get to the boy to help him. And so people interviewing her are like you and me, they're like, mm, really? Like how do we prove this is going on? So they gathered neuroscientists and they did a study and they tracked the signals in her brain. And in the study, they brought in another individual into the room and they begin to touch this individual just like with mild touches and then with like, you know, increasing severity of touch. And the touch center in her brain began to be activated. And the more severe the person, other person experience of pain, the more wild her, you know, the, the touch center in her brain began to go off. She was experiencing somehow this medical phenomenon. She was. Somehow experiencing what other people are experiencing. Now that's wild. That is wild. And yet this is the very idea that Peter's talking about. A sympathy that God creates in us. See, the church is to be a people that experience a degree of entanglement of our souls. Where we allow the very intimate emotions like sorrow and joy, our own personal sorrow and joy to be attached to the lives of others. That's what Paul talks about when he says, weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. You're weeping, I'm gonna weep with you. You're rejoicing, I'm gonna rejoice with you. Now, one of the more disappointing things that I think the church, capital C Church in general, in particular in the West, has done recently, has taken a very, has been to take a very defensive um, stance and really, particularly concerned about like, the semantics of whose lives matter. This has just been like an endless debate. And from my experience, I've heard a lot of people that have been unwilling to feel the pain of those who are hurting in this season. I've heard a lot of people that have been quick to respond to what they're seeing, going, like, oh, Whoa, all lives matter. Or, oh, wait, 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 you gotta hear the whole story. Here's what I think the scriptures do. I think scriptures bring clarity on this topic. So, so here's my best attempt to settle like a nationwide debate because, you know, I'm the authority on this sort of thing. I believe it stems from, at least in the church, a neglect of this passage in 1 Corinthians 12 that says this. If one member suffers, one all suffer together. Whoa, 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 all people suffer. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. But if one suffers, then we all suffer. Well, you, know, you need to understand the statistics of these things, I mean, you, you need to understand like the statistics of black on black crime. If one member suffers, we all suffer. One incident, means stop the show and reassess because this is important and if one member is honored all rejoice together let's get off the all lives matter debate and rhetoric and rebuttal if one member among us suffers we suffer we stand with you in solidarity and say your life matters All right, well, we're already in the deep end, so let's just keep going with this. There's no backing out. Okay, thirdly, brotherly love. We promote peace within the Christian community as we seek to extend brotherly love to one another. Now, there's a lot that can be said about brotherly love. But I think what we cannot miss is this, that brotherly love is ultimately brotherly loyalty. And the church is most influential in the world when it is marked by stubbornly loyal relationships within it. You're gonna find a lot of people that are willing to give up on you in this world, but this is the one place in the world where we should know that they're not gonna give up on me and I'm not gonna give up on them. We've got a lot of questions like, why are you pushing? Why are you pushing membership so, so much in this season? Because this isn't a trivial thing. An, an unloyal church is here today and gone tomorrow. An unloyal church has very little impact in the world long term. God has called his people to be stubbornly committed to one another, despite our differences. can't forget where our true loyalties belong. It's within the family. This is the family of God, man. This is the family. Before we defend a movement, before we defend a political party, before we defend an ideology, before we defend a department, we stand in defense of our brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm going to say that unapologetically. My allegiances are to no one other than God's people. I can't trust on my political party, although I'm I An independent, there, I've said it, but I can't, I can't depend on my political party. I can't depend on a movement. I'm not going to depend on anyone. This is the group God has said you can depend on them because there's no other institution under the entire, in the entire world that Jesus has promised. To build and the gates of hell will prevail, will not prevail, I've just totally messed that sentence up. There's no other institution in the world that Jesus has promised to commit himself to like the church because he himself said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's what I meant to say. Countries are gonna rise and fall. Parties will rise and fall, movements will rise and fall, groups will rise and fall, departments will rise and fall. Church stands. Christina Cleveland said it this way, to embrace our identities in this new common family, we must engage in the difficult, and it is, process of lessening our grip on the identities that we have idolized and clung to for so long. In many ways, this process will jar our souls. Some of us are experiencing that right now. Wreaking havoc on the satisfying, homogenous existence in which we were rooted. At first, it will feel painfully unnatural because we've lived outside of our true identities for so long that the truth seems wrong. I think, actually, I don't know what God is doing. I don't know the mind of God. But I think part of what he is doing is he is detaching us from all the things that we thought were so stable in our lives so that we're forced to anchor our hope to him and him alone. Fourth, tenderhearted. Tenderhearted, I love this word because this word that Peter uses here was the same word used in the ancient writings in the ancient world to describe a bond that exists exclusively between a mother and her child. And it's a bond that's forged in the process of gestation, uh, that traumatic process of birthing And then the time of nursing that child. It's that deep gut level compassion and bond that's just formed in proximity. And this is the the way that we are to interact with one another. Now, we joke about mama's boys need to cut the umbilical cord. Like, you need to cut the umbilical cord. But Peter is calling us to actually the opposite. We're to embrace that cord. And the reason we are to embrace that cord is because we as believers have the same and share the same blood of Jesus Christ coursing through us. Don't cut the cord, embrace it. Have tender-hearted compassion toward one another. And then finally, humility. Humility. What is humility? Humility is the willingness to forsake our positions, our status, our reputation, our power to move down the cultural org chart, wherever we may find ourselves within it, in order to stand with others and enter into the struggle of others, no matter what the cost to us and our own reputation and our own positions. This is not talking about like a PR opportunity where we snap a photo, look look at the humble people I spend my time with, and then we you know, vacate back into, the, hum, in, into the, the comforts of our lives. This is a determination of mind and a posture of life where we are willing to love and serve and care for those in an ongoing way for those who won't necessarily ever give us anything in return and offer us nothing to push us back up the org chart as we descend. It's the movement of Christ who descended look at me in Philippians chapter 2 it says this have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form he humbled himself this is true humility by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. What does it mean to be humble? It means to descend with no expectation that that person will push you back up again and the confidence that when Christ return, that we will be seated with him, that our exaltation is coming so today we can take the posture of humility. These are the attitudes that the Bible tells us the Spirit creates within us and then uses in the church to form that alternate society that I'm talking about among us, one that welcomes men and women in to experience healing and freedom. And this is the approach that the Christian church has taken throughout all of the generations. And really, particularly, this is the approach that the Christian church utilized to turn the world upside down, especially in the days of the early church. In fact, listen to this quote from Justin Martyr in the second century. He said this, we used to hate and destroy one another and refuse to associate with people of another race or country, okay? Our problems may be unique today, but they're not unique to humankind or humanity. But now because of Christ, we live together with such people and we pray for our enemies. We were divided, we hated each other, We were against each other, but now because of Jesus Christ, we are united. And one historian talking about this very quote, this very posture of the church, said this was the victory that overcame the world. This is what overturned the Roman Empire, peace among believers. This is no trivial thing. This is what God uses to transform the world. All right, secondly, and this is more brief, actions that pursue peace. Now, we've talked a lot about the ways that we are to maintain peace and unity, and these are really important things. But let's not forget this, that Jesus did not say, blessed are the peacekeepers. What did Jesus say? Blessed are the? Okay, I know that there's a mask blocking, but I... Blessed are the peacemakers to experience the promised blessing of Jesus. It does not come through keeping the peace. It comes through making peace. And so what it reminds us of is this, that peace is not a passive existence that we just experience. It's not just like, hey, man, don't rock the boat. We got the peace here. Let's just keep the peace. Let's just, let's just, like, let's just maintain things here. It's an active pursuit, something that we all actively pursue. In fact, When it says in verse 11, seek peace and pursue it, this word here, pursue, in the original language means a fierce fight to obtain something. Now, isn't that ironic? Fiercely fight to experience peace. Fight for peace. Am I the only one catching the irony there? Fight for peace. What does that even mean? And how do we do that? Well, that's a big topic, but let's look at two things that Peter mentions here briefly. The first way that we pursue peace is we exchange blessing for evil. We exchange blessing for evil. Now, January 30th, 1956, Dr. King had just finished preaching a sermon, and he gets word that his house has been bombed. Get races home, Pulls up, and what he sees is a long uh, line of police officers and a very angry mob with weapons in hand. He runs inside to check on his wife and one small child at the time, makes sure that they're okay, and then he comes out to address the crowd. And one of his biographers says that King walked out on his front porch, holding up his hand for silence, and he tried to still the anger by speaking with exaggerated peacefulness in his voice and he said these words he said everything is all right don't get panicky don't do anything panicky don't get your weapons if you have weapons take them home because he who lives by the sword shall perish by the sword remember that's what jesus said and then he says these words we are not advocating violence we want to love our enemies i want you to love our enemies be good to them This is what we must live by. We must meet hate with love. This is just one example of the life that the scriptures are calling us to. Not just non-retaliation, but the extending of blessing, the extra mile to bless our enemies, exchanging blessing for evil. And the blessing that Peter is talking about here, the word is eulogia. It's where we get the word eulogy. It means a vocal pronouncement of blessing. It means to call, it's a beautiful word. It means to call down grace from heaven on an individual. And so the contrast we're receiving here, we're seeing here is that when we are furious, when we've been wrong, when we face injustice and we rightly want to call down fire from heaven on this person, let God just destroy them, the Spirit of God steps in. He intervenes. He causes us to trust God for vengeance. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. And instead replaces that vengeance with blessing. Call down blessing on this person. Wow! I want to destroy this person, but the Spirit of God is overriding that impulse to bless them. Now I have to admit, just pastorally, this is not an easy thing for me to say, especially right now for a lot of reasons, one of which is I know in this room today there are people that have had far more reason to call down fire from heaven than I have. I'm part of the majority, man. And I get, I get that um, It lacks gravity and weight for me to say that. But because I'm not up here standing on my own experience or my own authority, but on the authority of God's word, I can say this, that I'm confident that we as God's people are uniquely empowered to do this. You are uniquely empowered to exchange blessing for evil. And the reason that we are is that Jesus did it at the cross. He, in the great exchange, He took upon Himself our sin, our guilt, our shame, our, our rage, our anger, our punishment. And in exchange, He gave us His life, His blessing, His love, His joy, His spirit. He exchanged. And because Jesus exchanged in our place, we are now uniquely uh, qualified and called to do the same, to absorb absorb the evil, to absorb the injustice, to absorb the hate, and in exchange, extend blessing. The second way that we do this is we embrace justice. Look at me in verse 12, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears upon the are open to their prayer. Now, this is very important for us to understand that throughout the Bible, in fact, I think that this would help clarify some of our uncertainty about how does the gospel and the church intersect with issues of like social justice and these sort of things. And there's a lot of debate about this, but I think this helps settle that debate. All throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, the word righteous and just are almost always interchangeable. It's not righteousness over here and justice over here, it's righteous and justice, which means a righteous life is a just life, which means pursuing peace involves pursuing justice. And the important placement of these ideas all together here in 1 Peter tell us where there is no justice, there will be no peace. Don't expect peace where there is no justice. Justice, And so for the sake of our integrity, and I really do care about the integrity of our church right now, for the sake of our integrity, if we are going to be a people that call others to exchange blessing for evil, then we are all going to have to be willing to seek justice on other people's behalf. We, don't, we can't claim the first part and not seek the second part. And really, how dare we judge the response of the afflicted if we are standing idly by at the sight of their affliction? Well, they shouldn't be doing that. They shouldn't be responding that way from the comforts of our own home behind the TV, really? Okay, I wanna be constructive. I don't wanna just poke holes. So here's my constructive advice on this. This is how someone that faces injustice can be freed from the temptation of seeking retaliation. This is how we can call people to bless in the face of evil. And here it is. It's when the people of God that have the ability to do something about it step in to seek justice on their behalf. People will always fight when they believe that there's no one fighting for them. But when the church stands in men and women's defense, the landscape changes. And so we do this by leveraging the positions of privilege and power that God has given us. We proactively seek to reform the spheres of influence that God has placed us in. You're not gonna change the world, but if you're a teacher, you can change the culture of your classroom. You're not going to change the world but if you're an administrator you can change the culture and the systems of your administration if you're a police officer you're not going to change the nation's public perception of you right now but you can change the culture of your department you can be a part of the change in the sphere that god has placed you in if you're a pastor which is not very trusted position in culture right now by the way You're not going to change public perception, but you can change the mind of one person at a time. Seek to be the change in the sphere that God has placed you in. I want to end with this final point, and this is going to be a brief conclusion. Abiding that produces peace. You guys still with me this morning? Okay. I know some of these things hit really close to home and are striking a nerve. I understand that abiding that produces peace as we look at bearing the fruit of peace in the midst of a hostile world what we need to understand is this, this is not just a sim- simply a list of instructions to the church this is first and foremost a description of our Savior Jesus Christ one who according to Ephesians chapter 2 is our peace Ephesians 2, starting in verse 14, for speaking of Christ, he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making what? Peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Hey guys, (laughs) that looks like a real peaceful walk. Hey guys, I love this stuff, by the way. This is like what it means to be a family. So what we see here, leave this passage up for just a second. Peace is not a concept. Peace is not a utopian idea. Peace is not a political catchphrase. Peace is a person. One who willingly was torn in two so that we can become one. One who died and rose on the third day in order to offer us the peace that we all long for. One who sent us his Holy Spirit to now produce that very peace within us so that we can now become peacemakers as we await God's sending of his son the second time when Christ returns to right every wrong and to bring finally his shalom, that lasting peace. Peace is not our idea. Peace is not our initiative. Peace is our savior, Jesus. And if Jesus is our peace, then the only way that we will experience the fruit of it in all of its dimensions, peace with God, peace within, peace among us will be as we abide in him by faith through the Holy Spirit. He is the source for what the world needs most right now. If you take my message and then just think you go out into the world in your own strength, and your own ingenuity, and in your own movements, and your own whatever to bring this peace, you've missed it. We've talked about ways to promote peace. We've talked about ways to pursue peace. But here's my main point. And I've saved the best for last. It is the Spirit alone who has the ability to produce it. And we will, we inevitably will bear the fruit of peace as we abide in the Prince of Peace. Abide. Abide. And uh, I told this to the first service, I have no idea how to, to, to end the sermon, so here's what we're going to do. If you are willing and you're able, I'm just going to call you to lift your hands into a posture of reception. That is, this is the posture of the Christian life, by the way. And what I'm going to do is I'm just going to pray for us that the Spirit of God would fill us with his peace, peace initiative in a way that would fill us into overflowing. God, we come before you right now.